And then there's sort of the, you know, sometimes unfortunately colloquialized use of OCD as as an adjective, like, oh, my, you know, so-and-so is so OCD about their appearance, their hair, their clothes. And it's sort of thrown around a little bit flippantly just to express someone who takes something very seriously or is very organized or something. But, you know, that that doesn't quite capture the distress uh, the genuine distress and debilitating effects it can have on someone's life who's really locked in a cycle of like, no, I feel like if I don't wash my hands seven times or repeat something in my head in a very prescribed ritualistic way, or really in my mind, something terrible could happen. And even if part of me knows that that doesn't make sense or that doesn't seem rational, I just can't tolerate the possibility that that could happen. OCD wants 100% certainty for what we want or what we don't want to happen. And the reality is we live with, you know, some uncertainty every day. And those of us who aren't suffering actively with OCD sort of take that for granted or just can tolerate that most of the time. But people with OCD sort of wear down the, the mental and emotional ability to do that in certain contexts. Welcome to Open Mind Night, a show that talks about everything mental health and mental illness related. I'm your host, Robin Tamanaha, licensed marriage and family therapist. Joining me on this episode is my guest, Dr. Martin Cha. He is a psychologist, trainer, and lecturer specializing in empowering people with OCD, anxiety disorders, and insomnia to reclaim their lives. He supervises therapists and psychiatry residents in providing cognitive, behavioral, therapy skills and interventions, and is the clinical director of CBT SoCal, the CBT Center of Southern California. Hi, Martin. Robin, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. How are you? Uh, good. Yeah, we, I know we've spoken just a couple times before, so uh, just happy to provide any information that's helpful for uh for the audience here. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for doing this. Um, I have a lot of questions specifically related to your, your bio here. And so maybe we'll do is we'll just go through, you know, some of them to give the listeners and then those watching, you know, some information, especially when it comes to OCD. I feel like there might be some misconceptions or even um, some people who may not even know the difference between, let's say, like, OCD and like anxiety. Could you maybe first kind of talk about maybe the differences between those two? Yeah, sure. It's a great question. Um, and you'll see a lot of people who maybe say that they they specialize in OCD and anxiety because yeah, there there are a lot of little similarities. But I think one way that's helpful to kind of kind of categorize uh, these sort of labels or things that we have is that, you know, in the past in our DSM and how mental health issues were, you know, literally categorized and diagnosed, OCD was a specific diagnosis under anxiety disorders. So the larger umbrella of anxiety disorders included, you know, post-traumatic stress, PTSD, OCD, then there's generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, then there's, you know, specific phobias, things like that. And in the more recent iteration of the DSM, the DSM-5, 
OCD was sort of kind of taken out from under the anxiety disorder category and given its own category, if you will. That doesn't mean that there aren't still overlaps with a lot of other anxiety disorders. And we see people that may have OCD in some form or fashion, as well as panic episodes. They may have a trauma history. They may have social anxiety. They may have, you know, health and illness anxiety, which is pretty much OCD just dressed up a certain way. But there are specific things that we identify as OCD when there's like ruminating thoughts or uh, compulsive behaviors that are designed to reduce the distress caused by uh, an intrusive, unwanted uh, obsession. And there's different forms that OCD can take. But and a lot of times it's not always clear. Is it kind of like a broader general anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, or is it specifically OCD? It's, it's not it's not always really that cut and dry in real life. So got yeah. it. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Thanks for explaining that. You know, and I think um, it's it's really interesting, as, as you mentioned, like the the newest DSM with the DSM-5, how it became its own, you know, it's became its own, you know, category with it, which I think makes sense because there's, it's like complex, right? And I know there's so many different types, even like subtypes, even when it comes to, um, when it comes to OCD, I kind of even wonder if there's people who may be living with OCD, but may not know about it. Cause I think some people may have like certain ideas of maybe what like OCD may look like. I think the, the thing I always think of, I don't know if you've seen that movie, like as good as it gets. that's I think what people think of usually but that's not always what it looks like right for sure yeah I I think you're right I mean I I think you know, probably the average person uh, walking around out there, you know, you know, has heard about contamination fears and people who wash their hands very excessively, or maybe people who like check their locks, uh, you know, multiple times or their stove, like these are sort of more commonly known forms of OCD. And then there's sort of the, you know, sometimes unfortunately colloquialized use of OCD as, as an adjective, like, oh, my, you know, so-and-so is so OCD about their appearance, their hair, their clothes. And it's sort of thrown around a little bit flippantly just to express someone who takes something very seriously or is very organized or something. But, you know, that that doesn't quite capture the distress, uh, the genuine distress and debilitating effects it can have on someone's life who's really locked in a cycle of like, no, I feel like if I don't, you know, wash my hands seven times, or repeat something in my head in a very prescribed ritualistic way, or walk three steps forward, three steps back, then four, then four, or something like in a very uh, specific and sometimes otherwise arbitrary way. If I don't do that really in my mind, something terrible could happen. And even if part of me knows that that doesn't make sense or that doesn't seem rational, I just can't tolerate the possibility that that could happen. OCD wants 100% certainty uh, for what we want or what we don't want to happen. And the reality is we live with, you know, some uncertainty every day. And those of us who aren't suffering actively with OCD sort of take that for granted or just can tolerate that most of the time. But people with OCD sort of wear down the, the mental and emotional ability to do that in certain contexts. Yeah. So, and it almost sounds like, to as you described this, what came to mind was like, if I think this, like if I have this thought, it's going to happen. So then they're like doing these different things, these like mm-hmm. reassurance things. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So the, a really common thing with, uh, you know, the one form of OCD that may be less known about is sort of, um, you know, postpartum or perinatal OCD, where someone who's just given birth, a woman's just given birth, they're a mo- you know, mother and has this precious baby that they love and, and just has a random thought or someone mentioned something about a baby being 
hurt and just thought, what if I did that? What if I dropped my baby or drowned my baby and like, oh my gosh, that's such a terrible thing. Why would I even think that? And wait a minute, am I thinking that because I'm actually dangerous or I'm capable of doing that and I'm in denial that I might actually want to do that? Maybe I'm actually a dangerous person. And, and so just to be safe, I better check with my spouse over and over like, I've never done anything violent, right? Or ask my parents, like, did I ever as a kid, did I ever have any trauma? Or maybe just never be left alone with my baby, even though I need to be nursing, right? So it just leads to a lot of reassurance seeking, as you said, sometimes, or just avoidance or or sort of ritual, some ways to, in the short term, alleviate, alleviate the stress uh, of the uncertainty that some, that that thought could be true. But again, someone without OCD might say, eh, I had a weird thought and well, that's a disturbing thought or a random thought, but it doesn't, I don't place any extra meaning on it as possibly true. So I just kind of move on with it. But that's the real difference. It sounds like a kind of this cycle, right? Where you have this like thought, right? And this concern and then whatever the reassurance is or like maybe the um, the action or compulsive behavior. And then it kind of maybe, like you said, alleviates it for short term, but then kind of goes back because it doesn't get rid of it. 100%. I mean, if you think about it similarly to how an addiction can grow, right? Like, let's say I have a drinking problem. And I'm dealing with the stress. Well, you know, hey, you know, a beer sure kind of helps me cope with that, at least in the short term. But then what happens is this, like, oh, I'm stressed again tomorrow or I'm depressed or had a fight. with, And then I got to drink again. And then that's reinforcing pleasure and pain principle, right? Like it feels good and, I, and it gets rid of the pain or the emotional distress. And so then but then I've got to do that more and more it builds up distress, uh, builds up uh, dependence and tolerance and all this. It's not necessarily the exact same with a compulsion, but it's a similar principle in that in the short term, it alleviates that distress or that anxiety. But then what happens is oh, that sense of relief, that sense of certainty I've given myself. Then I've got to do that again. The next time that thought comes up or a certain situation arises and, and you're right, then it, then it's a cycle and it's, it's tough to break, but that's kind of what we need to do when we're helping someone. Yeah. You know, help them understand the cause and effect and then kind of reverse that. Yeah. And I picture the tolerance or being able to sit with the uncertainty, right? Like that goes down then during this whole process. For sure. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, what, what you're simply essentially doing is sort of eroding your ability by experience, uh, eroding our ability to tolerate that uncertainty by avoiding it, by doing certain things that sort of put us at ease by seeking reassurance because, and then we're teaching ourselves, Oh, I will be okay as long as I don't do that thing and ask for this person for, okay, I'm okay. Or I'll double check something on the internet. Uh, okay. At least for now until I question it or have to do it again. And then, and then even though we think we have control, we've essentially lost control because this OCD pattern is taking up more and more space. Yeah. I heard, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, that like OCD goes after things you care about in a way. That's, that is often the case. Yeah. Uh, and I say often, um, just because, you know, no two cases are the same, but you could, you could phrase it this way. There are sort of some main themes that tend to be tapped with OCD related thoughts and behaviors, uh, generally related to control in some form or fashion, uncertainty, as we said, or safety, mm-hmm. right? So am I a safe person? Am I a safe mother? If I had this thought that I could harm my baby, maybe I'm actually not. I'm fooling myself. I'm a new, a newly minted mother. What's more precious to me and on my mind than this precious thing that I'm that's dependent on me? Uh, another common form of of OCD is uh, is sexual orientation. 
So sometimes people say, you know, well, you know, I notice, uh, let's say I'm a, I'm a cisgendered heterosexual male and I see uh, another male and I say, oh, that's a good looking guy. And then I think, why, why, why would I even have that thought? Was it? And then sometimes that, that thought can cycle into OCD and then sort of prey upon a certain way that I've internalized a sort of masculine or heterosexual identity that, you know, maybe for someone else, like, no, I'm not worried about, I know that I'm straight or I know that I'm gay. That's, I've never questioned that really, uh, or at least not for a long time. Um, and certainly not in an OCD realm, but I'm just so worried about someone breaking into my house. I watched a documentary on the Night Stalker. And since then, I just like, I've got to check the locks 17 times every night or someone burned their house and I've got to check my stove every time to make sure. But yeah, I'm not worried about this other thing. And so uh, now for other people, it kind of can jump around. Some people will say, boy, you know, when I was in my teens, I really worried about someone coming in the house. And then there was a period where I worried about my sexual orientation. Other people, and, and you know, and then you know, I, I grew up and then I got my driver's license. Then I, I had this constant fear that I was going to, that I had run over someone in my car. And just to be safe, I would circle around the block to make sure there was no, wait, oh, you know what? I didn't see clearly though, because I had to pay attention. Let me circle again just to be sure, right? And then we're, it's, a, it's, a, it's compulsive and yeah. can really, um, you know, grow its own teeth, you know? It's so interesting, especially as you described the, the car driving one where it's like, there's that concern or that thought like, oh, no, did I, right? Like, did I run over someone? So I'm going to go check. Sounds like someone who is super caring and probably wouldn't even want to do that. Really? Right. Yes. Well, and this is so this is where it gets interesting because, you know, um, let's say we have someone who says, you know, I had this thought about jumping off a bridge. How do we know that that's OCD and not a actual credible threat that someone could actually harm themselves, right? It's because the person with OCD, that image causes distress for them because they don't actually want to do it. Uh, the sort of fancy psychobabble term is, is it, you know, ego syntonic versus ego dystonic, which basically is like, no, if someone is depressed and they have a lot of risk factors for depression or self-harm, or if they've done it in the past in some other form or fashion, they're, they're thinking about it. It's going to be a different kind of conversation and therapy that it's like, yeah, you know, I, I've had a thought. I, I don't think I'll do it. But I'm, I might, I just sometimes it'd be easier if I wasn't here or sometimes it just feels too overwhelming or, you know, it's, it's different from like, oh my gosh, you know, like I, I, now I can't go to bridges anymore because like I would never do that. Like I'm not depressed. I don't want to end my life. I would never do anything like that to my family, but I just had this image of what if I just did it? What if I had an impulse to do it? And I know I just can't get that thought out of my mind. If there's an effort to push it away, avoid it, explain it, check that I won't do it or that it won't happen. It, it feels very different. And that's how we can sort of decipher the difference. Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Thanks for explaining that. And I think that's that's one, too, that like I think that's the harm, the harm OCD. Right. Mm-hmm. That um, yeah. it's so interesting, like how there's so many different types of subtypes, including that. But I'm glad you made the distinction because it's like, yeah, how do you know? How do I know? Or how does someone else know? Like if this is like, you know, like intentional, like SI or like just having the thought and they're so worried about it, they're actually trying to pulling away from many things so that they don't go anywhere near some sort of harm because that's like their concern. Sure. Which is avoiding, right? Yeah. And, it, and it's never really testing. If we just avoid something, we can never really test whether that thing will actually happen. But it's very, you know, seductive to want to do that because the more I avoid it, that's that's the only way I feel okay. Um, and now you mentioned harm OCD, right? I mean, that the example of jumping off the bridge, that's, that's a, a, an act of self-harm. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, it could be an act of, 
you know, unwanted thought of harming someone else. Maybe, as I said, you'd imagine some people who, who said, you know, I just had this, I watched this thing in the news of a, of a horrible school shooting. And I just had this thought of like, well, what if I did that? Oh my gosh, why, why would I, why would I even think that? Am I capable of that? And, and my concern is always, what if someone like this dealing with those thoughts came to a professional that didn't know what they were doing with OCD and didn't really understand the difference? And they would say, oh, this, this could be a credible threat. Let me, you know, call, you know, call the third party or get law enforcement involved. And, and they may not, they may not understand the nuances of OCD. And then pretty soon this person may be involuntarily hospitalized or, you know, medicated or treated in ways that may or may not be helpful for them or may actually be harmful or traumatic to them. So that that's always a concern. And that's why it's so important to understand the nuances of it. And, um, you know, it's just not everyone's specialty, unfortunately. So it can be tricky. Yeah. How do, what does um what does treatment look like for OCD? Well, so the gold standard treatment for OCD is something called ERP or exposure with response prevention. Uh, by the way, great resource is the um, International OCD Foundation or IOCDF. And on both the IOCDF website, our website, cbtsocal.com, there is a lot of information about exposure with response prevention. But essentially, I explain it like this, is exposure basically means confronting things that cause distress, uh, thoughts, images that cause anxiety, which are the obsessions. And response prevention, uh, the RP and ERP, basically references cutting back compulsions. So if I'm someone who has a lot of anxiety about germs and getting sick, well, I'm probably going to be very careful what I touch. Maybe I stop touching or I, I use, you know, uh, my elbow to handles or paper towels to touch every handle, even if it's in my own house and it just builds it more. And so I'm avoiding that. But I'm also doing some compulsions or rituals with washing. You know, after I you know handled some dirty dishes, I will wash up past my elbows or I will wash so many lathers of soap to the point of have my hands being dry and cracked and bleeding. And so the exposure basically means we've got to start systematically and hierarchically touching, having manual contact with some things um, that we may have been avoiding. And the response prevention means we've got to cut back the washing, you know, so we're sort of hitting it from both ends. And you really have to do both uh, with OCD uh, if if both are are big features there. And, and And the other thing I should just say to your question, Robin, is just, yeah, sometimes people really they hear that and like, oh, that feels so difficult. This is really uncomfortable. And you're right. It is uncomfortable because we're we're reversing the flow of a pattern that's built up and asking people to do some things that are uncomfortable. But I always sort of say is, you know, we 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 don't just throw someone into the deep end of the pool if they don't know how to swim. Right. We we scaffold. We give information. We give coping skills. We give a rationale for why we're doing this. And then we start with some discomfort. But. Uh, something that we agree upon is a tolerable amount of discomfort just to step by step stretch the comfort zone and then build up from there. If someone's afraid of heights, we don't go straight to the top of a skyscraper downtown. You know, we've got to go to a second floor balcony. I was sort of this example I use and maybe confront that and, you know, realize that that is tolerable and then move up from there and so on and so forth. So it's the yeah. same thing with exposure with response prevention. Yeah. It's like a ladder, kind of going up the ladder to what's oh, the, yeah. and going down in avoidance. Sounds like as well. Decreasing. Same thing. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a very brief introduction to what ERP for for OCD can look like. Um, Obviously, it may not always be that clean or simple in practice because people may be dealing with more than one mental health issue. There may be other health concerns, other stressors, um, multiple forms of OCD. But generally, that's the framework. Yeah, Yeah. that's really, really interesting. But like you said, helpful. 
you know, because if not, it'll just the avoid things are feeding into that avoidance, right. Or the, or the compulsions, you know, yeah. but it yeah. sounds like it's done in a way where it's like collaborative. It's, it's safe ultimately. And it's, and it's gradual. It's not like diving right into something. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It would just, it just wouldn't be effective if we said, Oh, you've been afraid of heights. Like let's, you know, book a flight to New York. Like it's just, this is not going to happen. We have to work up to it um, before someone is willing to to take that risk. And that's okay. I mean, that's what, that's what we, you know, we, we, we're challenging our clients, but we're also encouraging and we're validating kind of the distress of the cycle they've been stuck in um, all of that. And then, and then building a rationale and a case for trying something different because if they're really suffering from OCD and they've found their way to us, what they've been doing hasn't hasn't been working. Mm-hmm. Could you um, describe CBT as well? Because I know you, you brought you brought up ERP, which is good, and like maybe how that's what CBT looks like, like what it is or why that's like unique, I guess. Yeah, I would say that exposure with response prevention or ERP is sort of under the umbrella of approaches of a larger umbrella called cognitive behavior therapy or CBT. Long story short, I mean, the general approach with CBT or the general idea with cognitive behavior therapy is that uh, a lot of emotional distress is caused by or an expression of some sort of learned behavior uh, through our lifetime. And that may not necessarily be, you know, early childhood adverse experiences. It could be. Um, it could be that in addition to or or maybe more just things learned uh, later on in life. Um, but, you know, symptoms of anxiety, OCD, they they kind of, as we sort of said, to develop their own cycle, their own symptoms, their own form. And if these sort of disorders or, or mental health challenges are learned and reinforced through some pattern of behavior, that means they can also be unlearned. And that's what we try to do with CBT, where, you know, the emphasis is not so much just on sort of general talk therapy. I mean, obviously there's an element of that. We talk with our clients and really need to understand them and get, you know, the, the information we need to, to, to get a working conceptualization, but, but it's not just sort of with a focus on past experiences and, and childhood and early caregivers for its own sake. It's so that we can develop a roadmap of what to do, what we can, what can we do proactively, concretely now, and not just what happens in session where, we may have insights and aha moments in session, but we also want to give people things to be working on in between meetings so that they can be proactively working towards their goals. And with a lot of anxiety issues, with insomnia, with OCD, you really kind of have to do that uh, to keep things going rather than just relying on what happens in between us in the session. We do some work there, too, of course, but um, we, we give people things to work on in between meetings. Sometimes we call it homework or exercises or applications. So we're a little bit more hands-on and concrete with that. And in general, also, we're a little bit more sort of tangible with with kind of how we're trying to understand the situation and direct it from there. So that's, again, a very general, brief, broad brushstrokes of of CBT. Some people will talk about CBT as focused on cognitive behavior therapy, cognitive therapy, which is just changing people's thoughts. For us, I mean, there's an element of helping people examine their thoughts and whether they're they're helpful or working or uh, make sense or not. But it's really also driven by behavior, This the B in CBT. What can we do that tests our old assumptions or that changes or that could lead to a different outcome than maybe a pattern that we're stuck in? And that can change our thoughts from there, if you will, or our basic assumptions about ourselves, our self-esteem, our beliefs about other people and about the world, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, so. that makes sense. I'm glad you described it that way. And it's and I like how you, because you're correct, 
when I've heard others like kind of describe the CBT, it's so much on like the C, <laughs> but yeah. not so much the B, you know, um, which is the other uh, crucial piece it's, mm-hmm. and highly important. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because we have lots of thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. to control them sometimes. Sometimes they actually make sense while we're having these thoughts or feelings, you know, yeah. but what you do have control over or even, um, what can work with is like the behaviors or how you respond to the thoughts and feelings that show up for you. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and a lot of people are, are really, uh, and rightly so have an adverse reaction to the idea of just someone telling them that their thoughts are rational. It's like, yeah, I know that that's the whole point. That's why I'm here. I don't need someone else to, to tell me that. Or some, some people feel it, they've been really traumatized by, you know, you know, dare we say sort of maybe ineffective or poorly done CBT where someone said they were doing CBT and basically here's how you're thinking and that's not working. So let's think a different way. And a lot of people say, yeah, I know that that's not the issue. And so if we can kind of speak to some of that, but really get to, well, what can we do that's different? The B, the behavior, especially when it comes to something like OCD, but even, you know, depression or whatever you, we often find we have more success and more traction focusing on changing habits making different choices, communicating differently, confronting fears rather than avoiding them. That's behavior. And when we experience something different as a result of doing something different, that changes our thoughts. That in an, is sort of a, I don't say a back, uh, back end way of changing cognition or thinking patterns. So it's, it's both and, but it's just a different mechanism from some of the simplistic ways that CBT is often mm-hmm. portrayed and maybe even practiced. Yeah. You know? And you so. know, That also sounds, I mean, empowering in a way, too. Like, it's like, so I'm doing these different responses or different habits and behaviors. And and Mm -hmm. through that, these other, I'm, it's doing something with my thoughts. Maybe it's altering things. But, but I think, too, for someone to experience difficult thoughts and feelings and move and behave in a certain way, even though they're experiencing that and they got through it. Right. Like, I think that's super empowering and healing. Like, you got through that distress. That was really hard and tough for you, and you did it. You bet. Yeah. What's more empowering than that? Yeah. Right? And the, the challenge is, is, like I said, understanding the situation enough and making the case for the person we're working with to test that, because that's that's going to be scary. It's going to be uncomfortable. That's why we have to set up the conditions where maybe they're not risking so much. Or maybe it's like, no, that's within reason. I think I could do that. It'd be uncomfortable just because I'm in the habit of avoiding, but I think I could do this. I think I could go this far from home or drive this far or whatever it is without checking and and then build up from there. But experience is the best teacher. Um, and they, they say, it, you know, this is why we, we you know, people who are musicians or artists or athletes or performers, that's why you rehearse, right? Is and, and that's that's why people who are experienced at their craft, uh, who have played at high stakes level athletics, you know, um, then you know can repeat that because they've been in that situation before. They can play under pressure. They can perform in front of a big audience, right? And at some point, you know, new people have to develop that experience. But you know, you can't just teach that, right? So similar thing is we can teach. We do to a certain extent give people guidelines and principles and help them make sense of what they're dealing with. But in the end, the real power comes from testing and from doing something different and experiencing something different. It sounds very action oriented and also all the more reason why. Like, Because, I mean, as therapists, right, we see people for like 50 minutes once a week. Usually that's like a very small amount of time as opposed to like you know, the time in between sessions, you know. So right. that's kind of where the, right. that, that practice comes into play and testing things out like that's I feel like that's a, where a lot of the 
the stuff is too is like how how it went you know when you're practicing it on the outside or more frequently because and, and I feel like it's kind of different in session you know too when we're with our clients and they may also experience something different as opposed to when they're trying it out on their own outside for sure yeah yeah right and, and it, you know obviously it depends what we're talking about but you know we, we've had people you know let's say it was OCD and someone didn't want to touch the doorknob of the office and they see me do it and I didn't run to the bathroom to wash my hands and I even, you know, touch my glasses and touch my clothes and now whatever it's on there I've spread and they're like, oh, huh, now I'm just seeing you do that and you're okay. And then and then maybe that that makes them more willing to do it in session with me. But, you know, it doesn't end there. Can we carry that over into the real environment? So, you know, therapy is is a sort of constructed space and relationship and it's very powerful. It's a laboratory uh where we can talk about things and test things, experience and experience new things too. But as you said, the real world is not in a therapist's office. Ultimately, you know, what matters is, is the changes that we're helping someone uh, accomplish. Do they translate into their, the real world in a tangible way? And so we've had people who sort of say, you know, I worked with a the therapist who was great, very supportive for a long time, but I didn't feel like I was getting better. They just said, I, I wanted concrete skills or recommendations. And the recommendation I got was just more therapy. Just keep coming to therapy. And I said, I mean, I get that. Um, but I also understand from a client's perspective, sometimes you, you want to be given some tools or some direction. You know, if, you know, if when I had, you know, if I have a back injury, I want the chiropractor or the physical therapist to say, do these stretches, do these exercises, and that will alleviate the pain. Ah, thank you. I mean, it's, it's a simplistic analogy because not everything in therapy, you know, psychotherapy is the same, but to some extent, sometimes you just want someone to say, I know what this is. Yeah, right here, this vertebrae, do this and that will, that, that will help. Ah, thank you. What a sigh of relief. And so we really try to do that as much as we can with, with CBT. Yeah. So. Yeah. And as you described when you uh, when you gave the example of the doorknob and like how they see you touching, I almost feel like and it's probably very like OCD subtype to subtype or, you know, case by case. But like the therapist also level of comfort and also like if we're going to ask clients to do stuff or maybe take certain steps, like, you know, whether or not we do those things like our own feelings and thoughts about that, because if we're asking them to do something right, that kind yeah. of makes sense. Sure. Yeah, and this is where there's a level of creativity and um, sort of organic, you know, variability in what happens between the therapist and the client. Um, there's another common anxiety disorder that often overlaps with OCD called emetophobia, which is a fear of vomiting. And um, and it could be seeing someone else vomit or vomiting oneself or even just hearing or picturing, you know, all that. And, uh, you know, there's been there's a debate out there in the specialist communities about whether, <laughs> you know, the end goal of treatment needs to be to actually have someone purposely induce vomiting. And m- most people agree that you don't have to, that that's not necessary to really bring about meaningful change. It's more about tolerating the uncertainty and some of the the possibility of certain conditions around, you know, the potential to to get sick. But uh, I've had, I've, you know, met people in the field with similar specialties who they will actually get to a point with their clients while they, where they will take Ipecac together in session where they'll have a, you know, a garbage can and the client will have a garbage can and they'll both say, okay, one, two, three, we're going to take the Ipecac and we both do that together. I've not done that in session, but I know I, I've had other professionals I've met who, who, who do that. And so, 
you know, case in point in terms of like what is <laughs> a professional willing and able to do and whether you think that's helpful or not, too. So mm-hmm. very creative, very interesting. Yeah, I think I'm more on the yeah. stance of like <laughs> um, kind of like it may happen or it may not, you know, and right. sitting with the either the possibility of either way. Right. Yeah. And that that's the argument for like, OK, maybe we don't actually have to have them do it, let alone do it with them. Yeah. Um, but we just we have to maybe face other ways like. Some people with the metaphobia is like they can't even say the word vomit, barf, puke. They can't write the word. They can't see the word. They can't look at an, a cartoon image online of, you know, somebody looking like they might, you know, hurl or something. Right. And we have to kind of build up some of those as like, well, could that be tolerable? Um, and, and like we sort of said, step by step, take back more real estate and proactively test their ability to to tolerate that discomfort yeah so is there um i know i asked a lot of questions so is there anything i i didn't ask about that you would like the listeners or viewers to know or something you want to share yeah i mean i I, that's why we're here to to answer questions and hopefully give information i mean um i guess the other thing we see uh, a good amount of is is insomnia and um, it's, it's, you know, some people don't know that there you can actually do things in talk therapy, if you will, for insomnia. They think, oh, you take Ambien or, you know, Linesta or whatever, because there's so much, you know, billions of dollars going into promoting those drugs. But most people would probably say, if I didn't have to take a medication to do something that a newborn baby is capable of doing for 18 hours a day, then I'd rather not, you know. But, uh, you know, behaviorally, they're, you know, the frontline treatment for insomnia is CBTI, CBT for insomnia, where we don't just address sleep hygiene. We just, we address, you know, associations with the bed and the bedroom. We talk about sleep scheduling. Um, and just, you know, it, I, re- I really come to think of insomnia as an anxiety disorder that just is focused on sleep, you know. And um, so that that's something that that um, a lot of people on our team do some work with. Um, so just kind of a unique thing to put out there and just share in case um, that's obviously not, you know, intuitively not uncommon uh, for people to m- maybe dealing with insomnia in addition to some other form of anxiety. So that's something we we work a lot with. So, yeah. And other things um, sort of adjacent to what we do is, you know, some working with some people who have tick uh, through uh, what we call comprehensive behavioral intervention for ticks and Tourette's um, habit reversal training for people who uh, have body focused repetitive behaviors. So people pull their hair, trichotillomania or pick their skin, uh, which we call excoriation disorder. These are sort of the more kind of other specialized things that sometimes make our way uh, into the people that we're, we're helping with. Thanks for mentioning those. Cause I think, um, not even may know that there's like specific treatments for each of these things actually. And they may be experiencing, right. you know, or just thinking like, you know, I'm glad you, um, also earlier talked about the distinction from like, uh, you know, typical like talk therapy, because these other ones, the interventions are, are quite different, you know, and how it's, um, how it's being implemented or what's being implemented, you know, cause I think sometimes, I don't know, and I guess I shouldn't generalize also like what people, you know, may think when it comes to therapy, but I think there is that general, like just, we just do talk therapy when there's so many different types of interventions out there for so many different um, types of, um, you know, difficulties that are actually really targeted and that it can actually make so much more of a difference. So, it's good for people to know, you know, that you're not just going to sit there and just talk about things in general. You know, there's it's it's very much active. And it sounds like the therapists, you know, that work with these are also active themselves and also maybe even a little more solution focused in a way. And like so that, you know, these things can be, you know, better managed than what they're currently experiencing. 
That's that's what we strive to do. I mean, obviously there are people who we work with who who, who you know you know there are times when someone just needs support or they just need to vent, or there's a lot of history we do need to get to 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 really develop a, a helpful conceptualization of what to do, and and that's okay. We can do that too. But I mean, at the end of the day, our, our job is to be helpful and to, you know, work someone out of our office. And if without sort of some tools and, and some, you know, roadmaps to, to do that, it's a lot harder to do that if it's just kind of more non-directive and open-ended. Definitely. Yeah. Well, before we end, could you maybe um, give the listeners or viewers like website or social media handles where they, if they want to find out more about you or, um, or CBT SoCal. Right. So, I mean, in, in long form, uh, long form, um, our practice is called the Cognitive Behavior Therapy Center of Southern California, but our website is cbtsocal.com as well as our, uh, we don't use, we're not too active on social media, but we have an Instagram page, CBT SoCal, uh, Twitter and Facebook. Um, but really a lot of our main content runs through our website. We have, uh, blog contents on OCD. I have a colleague, Dr. Von Steitz, who's a sport and performance psychologist. So he writes articles about that. Uh, we have people on our team who work with kids and teens a lot. Um, I don't myself, uh, a ton. Uh, but, um, so we have a, a number of different specialties and sort of, um, clinical, uh, focuses. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then if people have other questions, you know, we have got a contact form on our site if, if we can be of help. And, you know, obviously we, you know, a lot of people come through our, our site and if for whatever reason, if we're not the best fit, we, you know, it's helpful to know other people with different specialties like yourself included to, you know, sometimes, you know how it is that someone comes to you and you're like, oh, I don't really work with OCD or something, but I know who does. And, you know, bipolar disorder, it's not something we work a ton with. So, um, but I know someone who does. So it's just helpful to have other resources and know other you know, professionals. So, you know, we really try to all be a team that way. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah. since we are still in the world of the pandemic, um, mm-hmm. so CBT SoCal does, it's, is it up to the client, whether they do video or in person, or what does it kind of look like for now as far as, you know, the way it's implemented? As of now, we're still primarily operating remotely just to be safe. We're, I don't know, you know, when this will be published and who will be watching this, whatever, but we're sort of in the period of COVID where uh, the Omicron variant is kind of on, on the surge and we're going into the holidays. So, you know, we obviously we want our team to, you know, to feel safe. We have a couple of people on our team who have done very limited sessions in person, case by case. If it was, you know, someone that just couldn't benefit from uh, being seen online, if it was a kid or something. Um, but for the most part, we've stayed online. We have two offices, though, uh, one in Glendale, uh, California, near Pasadena, and the other one uh, in Torrance, uh, in the South Bay. And so you know, for future reference, that's where our two teams operate from, even if remote. And, and my guess is even after things hopefully resume some sense of normalcy and the pandemic uh you know, improves is that, you know, there will some, there will always be some people who probably will, will access us remotely uh, and probably the same for you. And so we'll always offer that option would be my expectation at this point. So, yeah. That's, yeah. So that's good for the listeners and the viewers too, especially with um, the, the diagnoses that, you know, CBT SoCo works with. I know they are very much like, you know, specialized, they're very specific. So that's good because then, and for the listeners and viewers, if you don't know, um, when we're licensed, at least I'm LMFT, but, you know, when we're licensed um, in our state, we could see clients who reside anywhere in that state. So that means that, like, say you live in, like, NorCal or maybe, you know, 
San Fran Bay Area, you know, and you want to go, you know, receive services through CBT SoCal for via video, that's um, something you can do as long as you are a resident of California and you're living here and you are in the state when you sign on to that video as well. No vacay, but you've got to be here. So I think in that sense, you know, if, if maybe that was like the one thing with this pandemic is it really opened up our um, our reach when it comes to clientele, especially when it's something that is um, very niched and specific, such as like OCD, insomnia, the body focus, repetitive behaviors, all those, you know, um, it's very important to have um, a therapist that is knowledgeable and experienced with those treatments. So strange, you know, pe- people who are living in, in remote areas of the state. I mean, it, it's not that telehealth wasn't available before. It's just that nobody was in such a frame of mind that telehealth was the only option. And now it's sort of like, you know, it's not a, it's not this uh, foreign thing anymore. It's just the norm. So anyways, yeah. Yeah. Two years in, or almost two years in, I think we're all kind of gotten more used to the video thing. But you're right. Yeah, before it was kind of like, I know I did it a little bit before the pandemic. So it wasn't too much of a transition for me. But I feel like now I think some people even prefer it, too, really. Yep. Especially if you live in a remote area or certain areas. It's a lot of traffic sometimes and having to drive. So sometimes it's actually more convenient anyway. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. So what I'll do too is I'll put the um, your website and then also um, the social media handle in the show notes and um, on the description on the YouTube version of the video. That way the listeners or viewers, they can just easily click on it if they want to sure. reach out for any questions or services or anything. So Thank you again, Martin, for doing this. It was a pleasure having you on. It was so helpful and informative, too. My pleasure. Hope, hope uh, you know, this, this information has helped someone. Yeah, it, it, I think yep. it def- definitely, definitely is. All right. Well, take care. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening. Hopefully this was informative or helpful. If you think this episode may be helpful to others that you know, be sure to share this episode with them. The resources mentioned and the contact information for today's guests are listed in the show notes. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating. If you would like to stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast and follow the podcast Instagram, Open Mind Night Pod. Also, this podcast is not psychotherapy or counseling. If you need to speak with a professional, you should find one local to you and contact them directly. If this is an emergency, please call your local emergency number or go to your nearest emergency department.